Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. Mata kusalena yantam satam padam abhisamecha sako ujucha sujucha suachucha samudu anatimani santu sakocha subarocha apakichocha salaukauti Santindrio cha nipako cha apagambo kulesu ananugito Nachakudam samachare kinshi yena winu pare upawadeum Sukinoa kemino hontu sabe bawantu Sukitata <coughs> These are a few of the, <coughs> the first words of the Metta Sutta, the, the discourse of the Buddha on loving kindness in uh, in Pali with. Um, a melody that um, is uh, comes from uh, Sri Lanka, and uh, we have one uh, one man in our tradition, um, Damaruan, who uh, is a is a singali, and uh, he uh, when he was a, a young boy, around five or six years old, apparently. Um, he, uh, he started to uh, sing spontaneously in uh, big parts of suttas, discourses of the Buddha, as they were uh, chanted maybe a thousand years before. And uh, he actually was recorded at that time when he was a, a child singing. And uh, <clears throat> you can find these uh, chants, I think, on YouTube or somewhere on the internet you can find so you have the voice of the little boy spontaneously s- uh, singing big, big parts of uh, old discourses. Uh, never have been exposed to that. I don't know how to explain that. But uh, anyway, one time I sat a three-month uh, retreat, and Damarwan was there, and every evening he, had this, uh, he was teaching us the Metta Sutta in, uh, in Pali. So I used to know the whole thing by heart. No, I, I just remember remember it. Um, I just I thought it could be sweet. I don't know. 
I, I can't uh, I don't have a good ear for singing so sometimes apparently I'm on sometimes apparently I'm off <laughs> and uh, to me to me I can't tell the difference I can only tell the difference in joy I feel or <laughs> but sometimes like you do feel joy but it's awful to hear <laughs> so <laughs> but um Uh, there's also a, 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 a chanted version in English that is uh, can be quite uh, beautiful if it's on, if the person singing is uh, is in tune, <laughs> and they they sing it in um, in uh, in the monastery of uh, in uh, England. Actually, in many monasteries that are in the forest, uh, the Thai forest uh, lineage that some of you might know, and uh, I don't know if I should try this one. But just for you to hear the actual words of the of the sutta. Anyway, I'll, 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 it's a quite long, but I think it's. It, is, are you interested in hearing? I can read it or chant it. Chant it. Okay. But uh, anyway, the idea would be to let yourself be touched by these words that apparently were spoken 2,600 years ago. And so usually um, the lead uh, uh, monk or nun will uh, invite the community to chant together. And so there's a first line that says, Now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness. And then the whole community will chant together the sutra, the actual discourse, which is This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world.
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desire, is not born again into this world. So these are the, um, the instructions. And so they're pretty, it's real instructions, no? Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Radiating <coughs> kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depth, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So these are the words. And apparently the first time the Buddha taught uh, metta or loving kindness, it was in this situation where the m nuns and monks were going on the, on the rains retreat. So there's the monsoon there in uh, Asia. And during that time, uh, monks and nuns would stop traveling and around not to uh, damage the crops that were... Uh, uh, you know, in the, in the field, in the rice fields and all this. <coughs> so they would stop moving and they would stay in one place they put for the three months of the monsoon and they would uh, make that time a special time of retreat, of practice, of more intense, uh, silent practice together as a community. And uh, often they would uh, go, they would probably always go close to a village. So in the woods, somewhere in a forest, somewhere in an area where there was no one, but close to a village to be fed. Because when you're um, monastic, you actually uh, can't uh, pick up food or cook for yourself. The Buddha laid that rule for monks, that, um, for monastics, that when uh, just to highlight how dependent we are on each other, that uh, monastics would not be able to have money or food, carry or keep food. And so every day they would have to be exposed to their dependency on each other. So they would remember that they depend on other beings to live. For us it's a little hidden because we have, hopefully we do have money in our pockets or wallets or somewhere so that we think we're independent. I'm going to the bakery, I'm going, getting myself a piece of a loaf of bread, 
I don't need anybody. You know? It's a little hidden in this way. You know, if we had to go on the side of the street and just put our begging bowl, and you know, if we had taken the vow not to even pick uh, a fallen mango, you know, but to only eat food that is offered and not keep anything beyond the meal, after the meal to offer it to maybe other living beings that might enjoy it, we would feel very, very dependent. That would help the development of our gratitude and metta, you know, we would, we would be uh, touched by human beings and their actions and we would uh, wish human beings uh, well, I think there might be a relationship between the two. And so, anyway, the monks and nuns would go for the rains retreat uh, in a location. These particular group of uh, monastic went in a forest. Um, and uh, in the forest, maybe as uh, you and I would, if we were in, uh, in a f- particular forest, especially if we were alone, I think that if I was maybe alone, like very exposed in the middle of winter in the forest, I know that because I got lost last year in the forest <laughs> and uh, in February I think it was February and I I had that f- that sense so the the monastics were the particular group were in the forest and they actually felt scared in the forest they didn't feel kind of welcome there was crackling noise and noises and things happening and they didn't feel comfortable so they went back to the Buddha and they said could we go somewhere else you told us to go there but we don't like that place. Could we go somewhere else? You know? And the Buddha said, no, no, go there and I'll teach you metta, loving kindness. And learn this metta, learn this, you know, this recollection. Learn this. Have this in your mind. You will be protected by that. You know, because... Uh, you're, so, um, so they went back with uh, metta and they felt actually they could stay there because it really probably helped relax their mind and apparently the, the, the devas the we could say the angels living in the trees that were disturbed by the group of monks and nuns arriving there and uh, they were so respectful apparently they didn't want to go back up their trees you know because there was people sitting at the feet of their trees meditating and so it worked for a couple of days but after they, they, they thought we, we have to go back to our in our trees, you know, so they started making noise to make them move a bit. <laughs> and the whole thing got scary for the monastic. But when they went back to with Metta, apparently the devas understood that actually they were well-meaning and anyway, that they could get along. And so, and, uh, so it was taught as a protective measure for, from the heart. You know, that's why I was saying this earlier. It's a protection of the heart. I didn't think I was uh, going to be telling the story. I tell it, I've told it a few times, but yeah, it's true. I got lost last year going uh, cross-country skiing. I'd, I was on retreat, self-retreat, and at the end of the day, I thought I'd done a good day of work, and I decided to go skiing. But it was winter, and it was like something like 4 o'clock, and I decided, ah, oh, I need to move, you know, move the energy a bit, I'm going to go. And I went in the woods, 
and last year there was less snow huh? so the skidoo that usually tracks the, the thing had not been able to go do this track in the springs and you know in different places because it, it was not uh, enough snow and so I got lost a few times and found a few times but at some point it was completely dark and there was no I didn't know anymore where I I knew where I was within like two miles but that's that's not good enough apparently <laughs> and uh, it was uh, snowing a little bit and so it was really dark really really dark in the woods I couldn't see anything and I had these long things attached to my legs <laughs> and I started to try to go so anyway it was it was pretty uh, it was difficult uh, but it was really interesting I was so happy that I had practiced in the years prior to that because I could see the fork in the road you know I could go towards panic self-hatred you know like why did you go at four o'clock you, you don't even have a lamp you know or I could be really angry at iPhone because they tend to die in the cold very easily. I don't know if you've noticed this. But <laughs> mine was definitely not uh, in function anymore. And I was hungry, I was thirsty, I didn't have anything, and it was dark and I couldn't see anything. So I could go in that direction, but I could also, like, the door was open pretty wide in the, the door of the Brahma Viharas, you know, compassion, care, friendliness. And I was, it was really clear that that's where I, that would be the best guides, you know. And, and so there was a lot of, oh, not easy, Pascal, you're lost. That's not an easy situation for a human being to be lost in the dark, in the cold, you know. That's not easy. We really need to accompany this being. And also this being is going to need all their energy. They can't be leaking in panic. And, you know, they can't afford that. So... We need to be really careful and we'll need a very stable heart and mind because it might be a long night or God knows what's going to happen. But with that equilibrium and that kindness and that uh, I was able to, you know, see something was going up and I thought, well, maybe I'll go up. Maybe from up at the top of something, I'll see something else, you know. I got to the top, and at the top there was nothing to see. <laughs> and I was exhausted because my skis got stuck. I couldn't do without the skis, I couldn't do with the skis. <laughs> they were getting stuck in every branch and, and stuff. And, and at some point, there was just, I could let the story there, but just so you know, at some point, I could feel that like there was a little something that I could feel in the snow, like a little something like this that looked like in the hill, maybe somebody had walked there with snowshoes. It was very, it was like nothing. If I had been a little bit more nervous, I would not even have noticed it, but because there was nothing else happening, <laughs> then <laughs> this very vague, I couldn't even see trees really, you know, but I could see a, a little something when I was really close, and I followed this for a while, you know, like, and, all, and at some point anyway I saw the light it was the light of a cabin and then the story gets boring from there <laughs> but uh, you know I was in the woods with a lot a lot of metta it was actually it was actually very beautiful it was it was really a lot of unknown but I was uh, as I've been surprised a few times in my life how the power of this um, 
of this friendliness, how in difficult times, and so that was the difficulty, was a kind of physical situation, but the balm or the space, the, the, it felt like there was, a, there was a big bubble of kindness, you know, and it was as palpable, as experienceable as the unknown, you know, like the, it was as rich in this way. And I remember at another time in my life having a broken heart, confused, broken heart, maybe one of the most difficult time of my life. Uh, and sometimes I would be sitting there like feeling, yeah, broken, hopeless, despair and all this. And sometimes there would be this like kindness. And it was not fixing completely everything at, at all, actually. But I would be sitting there and thinking, wow, like I could, if somebody out here was asking me on this side, how are you? I could say, I'm such a mess. Like I'm such a mess. I don't want to exist. I don't want to feel. I don't want, I don't even want, to, I don't understand and I don't even want to understand. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want these feelings. The, and it's physical, it's ripping me. I want it to stop, you know. And then if somebody at the same time was asking on the other side, how are you? I could say, this is so incredibly sweet. I cannot, I'm, I cannot believe the amount of love that is there. So it's both ex excruciating and totally sweet. It's hard to, with words, to describe this, but, and even though, like, it felt like the whole thing was so difficult, like a big mass of metal, that was my universe, you know, like, hard, harsh, cold, there's this slight little, it was not a universe, it was just like a cold, like a little space, not a huge space, just like, enough to contain the pain, you know, like, just barely enough but it was there, and it was so, such life saving, you know, such, doing such good work. So, anyway, that's the development of uh, maybe, like, I, I don't think that I had that before putting attention and being interested and cultivating and following my teacher's instructions and encouragement and uh, guidance. So, um, so, it's, it's very, so this, anyway, just this, like that. So maybe the talk, as often, is a series of impressions talking about this. So we're reflecting, you know, you, you're invited to reflect on metta, to meditate on it, and to act on it. So now maybe we're reflecting on it, you know, so. Um, about the Brahma Viharas, these qualities, these four qualities of the heart. So there's a series of images. It might be helpful for you to remember, to help remember uh, these, or maybe feel, feel a little bit, get a, an impression of what uh, what are the different nuances in it. In the in the text, the, you, do you remember um, um, what's his name who wrote the Visuddhimagga? Uh, Buddha Gosa, earlier I said somebody was really organized a thousand years ago. 
in Sri Lanka. He said, okay, let me take the 17,000 discourses of the Buddha and make one book out of it, like really organized. Chapter one, two, three, boom, 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 boom. So he has, when you read the Visuddhimagga, it's full of images. I like Bodhugosa for that because he has amazing images. Like the, some are so funny and some really... And so there's four little images, I think, in that book around the four qualities of the heart. He says, Metta is like um, the kind of archetypal mom feels... Uh, when she, when the, with the newborn baby, so there's this love pouring, this kind of unconditional love that would be there, and so that's the expression of metta. And compassion is when the a little bit later, when the baby gets sick, you know. So it's the capacity to be there, to hold, to take care of, uh, with the baby crying or sick. And the image for mudita or joy is the joy of the mother or the archetypal parent when the child is a little bit older and starts discovering the world and engaging with the world and gets creative with the world and the joy of like seeing the little child make links between things and crack a joke at two years old (laughs) or something and say wow like in the joy of that of seeing a mind uh, open up and kind of own stuff and get involved, you know, in this way. And then uh, the, the, the example that is used for, uh, our image that is used for um, uh, equanimity is, uh, the, there's two actually, this one is the parent with uh, the adult child or young adult child who are making their own decisions. And the parent might be ambiguous <laughs> about the decision. I'm not sure this is going to work out, honey. But you have to, it's your life. You know, you do. I, I, I want you to discover, you make sense of your world in your way. You know, I want you to find out for yourself. You know? So the heart. The other image is the grandparents watching the kids in the park, in the municipal park, play. You know, uh, or an elderly person watching uh, kids in the park play and fight over, uh, you know, a, a, you know, something, you know, a, a toy, you know, and the the elderly looking and say, oh, you know, <laughs> sweet, you know, not being this, oh my God, he wants the toy, it's his toy, you know, they're not like this, they're like, oh, kids, you know, they want things, they really want them, you know. They care about it, and so they're in balance watching this. You know, so that's the imagery. Um, these qualities are known to strengthen each other. They need each other. If they don't have each other, they, it's said in some of the commentaries that if uh, metta doesn't have some uh, equanimity around or some... Uh, joy around or some compassion around the, these, each of these qualities will become almost its defect you know so compassion without being invited by joy in the field of what's beautiful and what's remarkable and what's working and what's uh, successful and without this uh, compassion would get stuck in the what we could call the battlefield of the world you know it would get upset with what doesn't work you know, and that wouldn't be sane, that wouldn't 
be healthy. You know, so joy is saying, no, no, it's okay, and come with me, come in the playground, you know, come to see what's working out, what's beautiful, you know. And if joy was alone, then it would be, uh, it would become some kind of like disconnected joy, uh, exuberance, or like, it's okay, everything's okay, it's okay, it's fine, we're good, it's good, everybody loves each other, you know. It's like, no, honey, it's not all that good, you know, There's, there are trouble and we can meet it, you know. And so it gives uh, strength to joy. And uh, uh, maybe uh, metta, or loving kindness, would become sentimental if it, wouldn't, it wasn't uh, balanced by equanimity or called in both directions by joy and compassion. It would become... Uh, Attachment and and some kind of like I love you, but you have to love me back. You know, some like uh, something that is something else that is not exactly love. I mean, in songs they call it love. You know, and in when we talk we call it love, but that's not what we're referring to. You know, what we're re- what we're practicing here is something else. It's a hand that is open that is offering. It's not like I'll give you this if you give me this, or I'll give you this if you stay, or you know, it's not that. That's something else. Uh, and, and and it's part it, that something else is part of our experience as human being. Of course, it's part. But what we're focusing here on is not uh, is a is a no, is a wish for well-being. That you treat me right or not. That you it's it's a little bit of another field, you know. Uh, and it doesn't mean again that there's no boundaries and clear boundaries. I'm not suggesting this at all. But uh, it's a, it's an unconventional. That's one way it's described. An unconventional uh, friendliness, because it can actually wish well to even an enemy. In the classic categories of friend, uh, you know, dear ones, neutral person, and uh, enemy, which is or difficult person. It can even it recognizes. Uh, something universal, the wish for well-being, you know, and it can wish this even to uh, an enemy. And I remember at the time where, uh, when uh, Bush, uh, the second one was, uh, I think, was president in America. I remember sitting a, a, a month-long retreat, and there was a, a nun, a monastic from the. From the Thai first tradition, she, and at the end of the retreat, I was talking with her, and we were both doing metta retreat for the whole retreat. And she said, "Oh, I have to tell you, one of the most beautiful days I had is I decided to send uh, wishes of well-being to uh, President Bush, and which is not uh, I'm not aligned with his thoughts right now." <laughs> no. But I decided to take him on and wish him well. And she said, it was amazing. <laughs> like, my mind was so clear and my sense of directing metta was so clear. I really want him, I wanted him to be well and, be, and have his heart open <laughs> and, and have deep wisdom and consideration for all life, you know. And, and she said she was... Uh, uh, even as she was getting absorbed, so absorption jhana is um, one of the ways people practice metta is not only uh, 
you know, the practice of metta with phrases, sometimes it's practice not only for the development of the actual quality of metta, but it's one of the 40 uh, objects of meditation in Buddhist practice that can lead to deep um, states of concentration known as jhana. So absorption, where uh, the mind can't actually uh, think of something else than the object. So the mind would be totally absorbed in uh, metta or in compassion or in the, if uh, one practices with uh, a casina, like a circle of color, one would be completely absorbed by the... Or you can, one of the 40 objects is attention to the breath, a classic uh, practice where one puts their attention here. Those of you who might have done a Goenka retreat, a Vipassana with Goenka, I think there was a couple of you... In the first three days of the retreat, uh, the instruction is to keep the attention here. And so sometimes within the three days, or if one was to continue doing this practice, at some point the whole of the attention would be, it's like a zoom in, like you're paying attention to the nostril, and then you're like, oh, where's this leading? I have to keep doing it. And, and you go back, and like, am I doing this right? You know, so you have doubt, you like get tired, you have too much energy, you think too much, it's hard to be with the nose, and you keep going, you keep going, and at some point, it's like there's a big zoom, it's like your nostril becomes the entire universe. <laughs> you're like sucked in, and so you're like, and suddenly you're just like this, and then you can't not be with the nostril. There's generally the nostril. You might even not feel your body anymore, and you're like, and everything is this, you know? And that's absorption. It takes a lot of dedication, it takes the right conditions, the, the heart has to be not troubled so much. You know, if you do this right after a breakup, usually it doesn't work so well. <laughs> you know? And so if the conditions of your life are pretty good, if you have the right setup, you know, quiet space, you're, you're um, you know, supported to do that, and you have the time needed, you, you can actually, through metta, do this. So what it would look like, it would be that you would go from, you know, saying, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease, and then, you know, you would like, oh, I'm tired of this, you would go back to it, and then at, at some point it would be, get really, really quiet, really quiet, and at some point in the development of that, you, it would be hard to even say the words, you know, you would st- start to say happy healthy and at some point just love just just that wishing and this would be impermanent it might last 10 minutes 20 minutes 2 hours 4 hours but at some point it would crumble at some point you were like oh my god my back aches so much <laughs> oh my god oh and there's a there's some kind of transformer machine going on I had not noticed you know <laughs> that's annoying you know and I'm hungry I have to pee <laughs> so that's uh, so I'm just saying this is uh, one way that the meta practice with the phrases has been uh, that's maybe one of the main reasons why it's done with phrases is because there was the interest in developing concentration through the uh, metta, through loving kindness.
I don't think, unless the conditions are, you know, your karma and everything else is so in order that this could uh, be experienced in two days of retreat, and you might listen to this and, oh, at some point it got really quiet in there. Often, uh, on two days, it's a little too short for something like that. that that's why... That's one reason why people become monks and nuns. <laughs> Not the only one, but it could be, uh, or one of the benefits maybe is the way to talk about that. So there's two different topics I want to touch on. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about this particular category of the difficult person. Uh, and uh, That's very uh, delicate uh, work to send metta to the difficult person. And you might have already experienced this because sometimes on these retreats, you know, without telling the teacher, although it's not been invited in practice, you go straight to the most difficult person in your life. <laughs> and I know it makes sense because we want resolution. You know, we want, we, we feel the pain of having somebody outside of our heart or the pain of holding resentment and confusion. And so we want healing. So, of course, we'll, we'll go in that area. And it's, it's tricky, it's delicate work. And sometimes also you might uh, know about this because the difficult person for many of us, I don't know, sometimes I hear it's in the Western world, but I, I'm not sure I buy into this. But for many of us, the difficult person is self. You know, so when we start met, uh, sending meta to self, people often report, as you have, some of you have been reporting, I can do it to others, but to me, it's, uh, it's disturbing, it doesn't feel right, it's... Uh, triggering, uh, I, I forget about, you know, like it's, it's hard for, to send metta to uh, oneself. And so it's, uh, it's delicate work. And probably one of the ways to do it is to find places where metta f uh, flows, is easier, there's no big obstructions, you know, and to actually uh, get the feel of it, get the flow of it, get the confidence of it, you know, that I actually can, can do that, I can wish well to somebody else, you know, get confident and then just bring in a little bit of, you know, like I said, with the neutral person, do this with uh, the difficult person without any expectation, more as maybe you were suggesting as an intention, like I intend to send you metta, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you know? You're not going to get away with, with, <laughs> with it. You know? But often there is a, a practice, and I'm making jokes about it, and I know that it's very delicate for many of us, you know, and, uh, because we've been hurt, and some of us has been, have been really deeply hurt by uh, other beings. And so there's the whole uh, work of forgiveness practice that is very delicate one has to see this over a long long period of time uh, and it's again it's more of an intention I intend to uh, 
forgive and, and what's that it's also has maybe many definitions but um, certainly for me it means uh, bring some peace inside this heart you know have this heart be uh, find some uh, kind of resolution uh, and it certainly doesn't mean forgetting you know there's a way where one can actually know that something happened that some trespassing was done you know by oneself or another you know one can be very very clear about this without hatred even for self or I mean for self as much as for somebody else but we cannot impose that expect that from ourselves that would be unwise to think like I should be able to do that it's really it's a long maybe a long maybe not but more often than not is a long path and we have to have a lot of patience and a clear intention a clear intention um, maybe I'll talk uh, more personally as I did in one group um, for me there was a uh, kind of forgiveness to do about there was two things like one action one one thing that I did in my life that was uh, that was uh, it was harmful it was it was uh, it was not wise uh, and I was carrying guilt around this and there was also a work of some kind of forgiveness around the, the HIV also uh, although I didn't fall into as I've talk to other people who have been seriously into kind of personalizing it and you know it's my fault and all this but still there was some something to do about it and um, <clears throat> so I was carrying guilt you know there was a knowing of the harm done but it was uh, there was the, the mistaken view was that I was defining myself by it I was a bad person because I had done that. So there was a mistaken view. I didn't know that. I thought this was the only way to hold that responsibly, you know, to be guilty of something. And uh, <clears throat> one time, Sylvia Borstein, uh, in one talk when I was sitting uh, on a retreat like we are now, she said these just these sentences talking about um, forgiveness and understanding. And she said... I don't know if she was talking about her or it was a general statement, but she was saying there was just these two phrases that I really hit me. She said, it could not have been otherwise. The conditions were such that it could not have been otherwise. And it just, this insight, insight sometimes comes from silence or as we see in the sutras, insight sometimes comes from uh, the teachings the Buddha was a really skilled teacher teachers. so we often read in the text you know the Buddha said this and after he said this 500 people were present had their mind cleared about that you know and so that's the power of these teachings when well taught and so when she said that it could not have been otherwise the situations the circumstances were such that it could not have been otherwise this applied to both situations. In one go, I've, you know, that's insight. Sometimes when we have an insight, 
if it's a powerful insight, it has different kinds of power. But the, one of the powers of insight is that it can be... Um, what's the word? It's, um, I always look for this word. It's uh, in... Uh, usually I find it. <laughs> but we don't know. It, what? It's the same problem in French. <laughs> it's inferential. Inferential is the word. It means that, you know, like the insight into impermanence. Like when there's a very deep insight into impermanence is at some point, I don't know what happens in the walking. You put your feet and there's the experience of touch. And then the experience of touch disappears, you know, because the feet lifts. And in the disappearance of the touch or hardness that, you know, if the mind, if the conditions are right, if the mind is stable, engaged, everything we're working at, you know, very stable, not discursive, not evaluating, not in doubt, not too much energy, not too little energy, not wanting something else, but really there, stable, engaged, maybe it's one of the places, it could be anywhere, the the, the feet lifts and when the hardness the experience of hardness finishes one understands things finish things do finish like I'm going to finish others are going to finish projects are going to finish things are going to finish and there's a, that's, that's an in, a deep insight that is usually liberating because my hope that it's going to continue and will it continue it just drops Things are ephemeral. So this, do you understand the eff- inferential? It means I'm so there that one event makes me see the rest of the nature of the world. That it's not just that step that disappears. That every, all my thoughts, my emotions will pass. My views, my points of views. I'm good, I'm bad, it's too long, it's too short. All these impressions will pass. How amazing is that? This could lead to cynicism, you would think. You know, ah, everything passes. It doesn't. When it's well done, it leads directly to the four Brahma Viharas. Wow. Everything passes. And somehow it's love that emerges. Compassion, care. We're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our health. We're going to lose our loved ones. Everything's going to be lost at some point. And when it's lost, it will show its ephemeral nature. Because while it was there, it looked so much there. But when it won't be, it so won't be. No? Do you have that experience that when something exists, it so exists? When I'm impatient, it's so impatientable. The world, like, it's, I'm so impatient, it so exists. And then, when suddenly it's gone, I'm like they're like, you are so impatient. Forget about that. Like it, that was earlier, you know. It's fine. I don't mind. You know, it's not available anymore. It's just inexistent. So I was. I'm saying all this to talk about the inferential nature of uh, insight. So it started somewhere. <laughs> I need. I made a big parenthesis. Now I'm lost. Sorry. So Sylvia said, so that was the inferential nature of it. She said, 
Thank you so much. You're on. Uh, so she said, circumstances were such that it could not have been otherwise. And in one, in two sentences, it fixed two problems, big problems that I had. It's amazing, no? Two problems, not one. You know, it's like your mind, you think, would work on only one thing at a time. But two things got fixed. So that bad action that I had done, it became really clear. I didn't have to think about it. This is what I mean when I say insight is not in the conceptual world. It's a hit. It's physical. Even you might have a little like, oh, you know, whoa. And you feel it. It's like, wow, I don't carry that weight anymore. So that action that I had done, I understood. The circumstances were such, there was such, a, there was a thing happening for me was about greed. There was something I could get. And if I was to say this and do this and do this, I could get it. And I actually get, got it. But it meant lying. It meant a bunch of things that were not ethical. And I did it. And I got this. And my understanding was at that time, there was no wisdom. Not enough wisdom to know that this would not bring happiness. And the way to get it would certainly not bring happiness. I couldn't know that. The circumstances were such that it could not have been otherwise. There was this beautiful thing that looked satisfying. I didn't know yet that nothing was completely satisfying, that things were ephemeral, and they were not, not worth uh, getting outside of ethics to get them because they couldn't provide anyway, completely. I was under the illusion, the understanding that I needed this and, and this at all costs, and I could get it. So the circumstance, and there was no wisdom, and there was a lot of greed, and a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of delusion. And so I went for it. And it did create effects. It did harm. Don't worry, not in big ways. <laughs> the most, the, most of the harm was here, because I had to ju- spend a lot of time justifying and trying to enjoy something that was not enjoyable because I was guilty, you know? And so the whole thing was a mess. It was not a success at all. But then I could, it was not like I'm saying, ah, that's how it was. I'm not saying this. I was completely responsible, but there was no hatred. There was totally my action, my decision, my making. No need to hate Pascal at all. And it had an impact on other people. Very clearly. So I'm never going to forget this. It's not like, oh, it doesn't count. It actually counts a lot. But there's no need to hate anybody. But we can be really clear that an action or a thought or, you know, is not helpful, is harmful. We can have that discernment. Yeah. And about the HIV, there was something similar. It was suddenly very clear. I was not born in the 1600. I was born in the 90s. You know, I was a young man in the 90s. There was confusion. Society didn't give me much uh, good role models to follow. And there was a whole set of circumstances that were gathered together, the circumstances were such that it could not have been otherwise. And this is how it was. And now, there's a responsibility to take care of it. No, no one to blame, but we can be clear that I was not supported by society, you know, in the Reagan era. So why could we, why do we keep in Quebec talking, <laughs> do I keep talking about the American presidents? <laughs> you know? There was a bunch of things, and I can have clarity about it, but no need for hatred. 
you know, just clarity. And now there is a disease, and it needs to be taken care of really responsibly. Et voilà, end of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make the thing disappear; it's still there, but it makes life a little bit easier to not identify an action or a thought or a word with somebody. When I identify an action with somebody, I'm stuck. I, I define myself or define somebody else by something. I can have a lot of discernment and say, this person did that. This behavior or this pattern is dangerous, clearly dangerous. I don't need to hate. I can recognize a pattern outside of defining a person by that. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is not easy, but it's actually totally doable. It takes time, it takes commitment and understanding. I'm actually not going to do this. I'm not going to link the two together. And you can try this with, you, with yourself in little ways, you know, where you identify, you define yourself by an action. You don't have to. There is this pattern, it's there. In meditation with my teacher, when we report, we don't own things, even in the wording. So when I report to my teachers, I'll say, there was sitting, there was breathing, there was awareness of breath, and then the mind got uh, um, obsessed by something that was, you know, some thoughts, and it got lost, and there was no mindfulness for a while, and there was obsession for a while, and then there was a... Uh, you know, mindfulness came back again and it was recognized that the mind was lost and caught. You know? And it's not like, I was caught and I was caught again and I'm always caught. It's just the mind was caught. These things happen. You know? Or it wasn't like, hey, I was so loving, I'm so loving. It was like, there was a presence of strong uh, benevolence and it was making the body, I don't know, light or bright or tingling, you know, and, and, it, and then it passed. You know, it was not like, hey, I'm so like this. There's no owning, but there's consciousness. So that's the middle path between an extreme, which is irresponsibility. It's fine, you can walk all over me and abuse me all you want, it's okay. You know, it doesn't matter, you know. Or, ah, I said that, I don't care, that's what was in my mind at that point. No, that's an extreme, irresponsibility. Another extreme is hyper-identification or just identification. This is me, this is the other. The middle path, which is often how we describe Buddhism, is a recognition of what's there, what's helpful and what is not, and a taking care of it from the angle we're in. If what's unhelpful is inside of me, like if cruelty instead of metta crosses my mind, I hope you pay for, I don't know what, putting your shoes where I usually put mine, <laughs> if that mind, if that thought crosses the mind, I don't have to identify with it. I can just be wise and recognize this is a cruel thought. It's probably not going to. It's enjoyable, you know. I enjoy thinking that you're going to pay for something. <laughs> that joy is not the deepest, most high quality joy we've met. Up to now, you know, it often leads to difficulties in one mind and others, people's life. I don't need to entertain that. It doesn't have to define me. I'm not a cruel per- person because there's a cruel thought. There's, the only thing that we know is that there's a cruel thought and it needs to be made conscious. 
you know, and not uh, entertain. Et voilà. Nothing personal about it. Yeah. I mean, et voilà. Easy to say, because when suddenly with, okay, yeah, I understand, maybe it makes sense, but when you think of that person, then I, it becomes really blurry. <laughs> like I, could, I can't apply it to that person, me or somebody else, because they did that to me. You know? And so it takes, a, it takes some work to deconstruct you know, and recognize this was done, this was harmful, and we know that clearly, and it had an impact and ripples. You know, this was really done. Can I not do the unwise thing of hating somebody, but just recognizing this was harmful, this was harmful? Clearly, it was. You know. So maybe meta and uh, bringing attention. Mindfulness helps do this uh, kind of work. It's time for dinner. I'll I'll just use that um, imagery just to finish on something less than not so theoretical and technical. But uh, an image that is often used is uh, you imagine, imagine that you, uh, it's a nice summer day and you're in some park or where people rent little boats. You know, you can rent a little boat for not much money. You can get on the boat and just go boat a little bit around. And, uh, and so you're boating around. There's not many boats, it's very quiet and there's the sun and you're there and it feels good and you just lay down a little bit to catch the sun so you're laying down in the boat and it's really sweet and agreeable and you're watching the sun and somebody some, bang you know somebody knocks you with another boat and your first reaction is like asshole <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe <laughs> And you turn around and it's an empty boat. (laughs) It's an empty boat. And what's, how is that held then? You know, very differently. Because you cannot like make it, you know, it's like the stupid person doesn't exist. It's just the circumstances were such that this is what happened. This is what, what happened. And I like that image. It's very challenging uh, image to work with. But in Buddhist uh, teaching, this is kind of where it's going. It's saying, this happened, you know, and the person that is there, you identify them as uh, inherently who they are, essentially who they are, but they're actually a product of their culture, their uprising, their understanding, a lot of it erroneous, wrong understanding about stuff, wrong understanding about what leads to happiness. Like in the case I described, I firmly believe that my happiness lied. It was totally mistaken in having this thing. And it was a mistaken view. 
some something like everything contributed to that understanding that didn't last you know it changed with time especially that experience was a big learning thing you know? and and so um, you could identify me with the the move but you could also understand it in terms of cause and conditions you know that there was so much m- mistaken views in Pascal that it led to that you know? and Pascal can be absolutely responsible can say I did that this is what happened and it had this impact and maybe be able to fix if it's fixable in some ways you know and so maybe with others also we can do that say this person is so so mistaken so mistaken there's actually I would have to look for it maybe I'll look for it but there's a beautiful poem from uh, Mary Oliver it seems to me that in the I don't know if it's in an obvious way or in a very uh, subtle way or it's my interpretation of it but there seems to be a poem where she talks about this I tried to find it but it uh, yeah let's leave a little suspense I'll try to find it and read it uh, later tonight so let's just take a moment here and So may we be able, uh, amongst other things, to be able to f- uh, be freed from guilt and self-hatred and self-loathing and all the different uh, movements of the mind of that nature. Maybe we free from guilt and may we be able to be responsible and feel uh, the heat and the discomfort sometimes of uh, spiritual remorse we could call it like this like recognizing the harmfulness of some of some behaviors of speech or actions without falling into the uh, trap of uh, identification and guilt can we have clarity of mind may we have clarity of mind so that we can uh, we can be responsible and not uh, trapped forever in our views about ourselves. And may we be able maybe to liberate others also in this way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.